Hey gang, welcome back to The Hustle. Let's get the business out of the way. Please leave us a review. I had no idea how difficult it would be to solicit people to leave reviews, but I'll ask one more time. Please leave us a review. They're very helpful. Good or bad, short or long, I don't care. Please leave us one if you have an iTunes account. Also, send us a message at thehustlepod at gmail.com if you want us to find somebody. Like our Facebook page, interact with us that way. Find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. We just want to stay connected to our fans. All right. If you recognize this song, and I'm pretty sure you do, it's still ubiquitous. It's Magnet and Steel by this week's guest, Walter Egan. Walter came up through the ranks of the Southern California sound that also bred Fleetwood Mac, we're going to get to them in a second, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown. He was a peer to all those people in that beautiful sun-faded sound of the 70s down in Southern California. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks produced his first two albums and his second album is the one that featured magnet and steel which reached number eight i believe in 1978 you can't ask for a much bigger kind of introduction into the music world than having those two at that time produce your album play on your album befriend you kind of champion you i've buried the lead though about halfway through this conversation walter opens up about his love life which includes Stevie Nicks. It also includes another famous lady. I'm gonna leave it as a surprise because he does that in the interview. Let's just say she's known in some circles as the most famous groupie of all time. You gotta hear this. I was blown away. I had no idea that he would open up to me this way, but he did. We have a very thoughtful, in-depth conversation that goes back over his life, his career, where he is now. He's a substitute teacher in Nashville. The highs and lows of his career. He was a really good dude. He called me from his home in Nashville. My secrets to reveal for you. try to kick these things off with a story about how I discovered the person that I'm talking to. Magnet and Steel is still played often today. Most people know that song. But what tipped me off was a couple of weeks ago, do you remember the singer Greg Kinn from the Greg sure, Kinn band? Yeah. yeah. So I follow him on Facebook and he I periodically... Love Jeopardy. Yes, yes. Great yeah. stuff. He was on Berserkly Records. That's was... right. Wow. The San Francisco. Yeah. Great, you're right. Yeah, no, yeah. I love the Greg Kin. I think he's Okay. Great. On Facebook, every now and then, he will post a video to a song that, you know, hasn't been heard in a while. And it's sort of a series. It's called Remember This Song. The other day, I'll go in there, and he's got them lined up in YouTube like a playlist. So I'll go in there once in a while, and, and I'll just hit play and let the videos play over and over because it's all these great tunes that – Either I haven't heard from a lo- for a long time, or maybe I didn't even know that well to begin with. And mm-hmm. Magnet and Steel was on there. And, cool. of course, I knew the song, but the light bulb goes off, and I think, Halter Egan, that's a guy that I don't know that much about, and I would love to know more. So I sought you out. You were kind enough to say you'd be willing to hop on with me. I've been listening to as much of your music as I can digest. I've listened to almost every one of your albums so far. Obviously, that's a good trick. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I want to be as familiar as I can. And, I mean, there, uh, sure. I, I knew some of the stuff. And, uh, but so I when you to say re- every one of my albums, you mean all ten of my albums? When you say all, all, every one of my albums? <laughs> I've listened to the first five. Right, um, so those are the vinyl ones. Those are the ones yes. that were on vinyl. Well, here's the, then, so I listen to most things on Spotify, right? So mm. I listen to almost everything I could find on Spotify. Very you convenient. You sound like you have uh, some opinions uh, about Spotify. I can oh, tell. well, yeah, of course. As a songwriter, I detest Spotify and Pandora. You know, mm. I mean, I think they uh, take advantage of and are basically choking off the career that I had, have had, mm-hmm. have had. Not yeah. particularly me, but people who are coming in today. I mean, if streaming is going to be the model for the future, then how are songwriters going to live? How are they going to make a living? I mean, you were talking about that a minute ago. Uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to have been on the cusp of when it paid reasonable amounts to uh, songwriters that they could make a living at it. So, uh, and even a song as old as Magnet and Steel, you know, still generates, you know, a sizable income from the usual traditional streams, right. you know, and, and, but I'm happy that it does expose people and I'm happy that you were able to connect with my music there. You know, yeah. I mean, it is, it's a, it's of course, you know, a curse and a blessing, the whole yeah. modernization of the music business as such. So someone like me, you alluded to that earlier. Well, what I do, I mean, I play as much music as possible. I do as many gigs as I can, which aren't uh, as many as I'd like. Right. But uh, I'm trying to do more. I think I'm playing as well as ever, singing as well as ever. And, but it's hard in some ways to get my demographic or my my peer group to come out. I mean, they come out for like, you know, Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and Billy Joel or whatever at exorbitant yeah. ticket prices. But on the day-to-day, playing a, a club, playing a, you know, I mean... It's not that easy for me, and that's something I'm still working on. I mean, I know people of my ilk are doing it, and I'm still trying to find that way of doing that. And that's got to be think, difficult. Yeah, well, I'm planning this year as the, I, I think of myself as the ultimate cult figure. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh-huh. You know, I think um, the media and you, and you know, specifically being mm-hmm. a, a little tentacle of the media is so all present now that they're hungry for interesting stories. I mean, not yeah. that I'm just a human interest story because I, I don't think I've ever no. stopped doing what I love to do. Every year mm-hmm. I record an album, whether you know it gets released or not. And uh, you know, Myth America was the most recent album that I yeah. did, and that was last year. You Looking for a cause Hoping for respect Maybe just applause You're a refugee Washed up on foreign soil What you gonna be? A peasant or a royal
I've been recording at home with my drummer, and then I, you know, basically do all the rest of it myself. And it does exercise that muscle that I have that I feel yeah. I have a gift for as far as producing Definitely. records and writing songs and, uh, you know, the whole package. It, uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. the technology that, that on the one hand is ripping us off as songwriters yeah. has also created affordable recording situations where yeah, true. You know, pretty much anybody can make a, a recording at yeah. home. I was going to touch on all this stuff later, but we'll get into it now since it's already up. Let's take me as an example. I'm a voracious music listener, and I have no problem buying music, but because of the ease of Spotify, I'll tend to listen to something on Spotify to make sure I like it, and if mm-hmm. I do, then I seek it out, usually, when yeah. I have disposable income. And let's be honest, I mean, there's a trillion things vying for your disposable income these days, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. But I'm 42 years old, and prior to recently, I was only marginally familiar with your catalog, right? But now, sure. thanks to the ease of Spotify, I like it, and I'm a fan, and when those opportunities come up, I'm going to capitalize on them. Like you were saying, it's good and bad. I mean, the good part is that it's easy for people to discover you now, mm-hmm. today, generation after generation. It's just harder to capitalize financially on any of that, I would imagine, right? Right. That's the uh, the paradox. Yeah. <laughs> the music business. But I'm curious yeah. if it, you were saying about your core audience not coming out your shows as much. So I was listening to an interview you did a couple of years ago about a Yacht Rock bill that you were on, which I had never considered you Yacht Rock, but I guess if we're going to talk, you know, I guess if Yacht Rock encompasses soft rocks from the 70s, then it would probably fit. But Right. I, I felt not the mainstream uh, smooth mm-hmm. rock thing that they that they portray, but, but I'm happy that they've included me because these people are, you know, your generation or even younger that yeah. come to these shows. I mean, we just played in sure. Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> they have their big revival every summer. They have about 4,000 people in Piedmont Park. Right. It's all with these sailor caps on, these captain hats, you know, yeah. Yeah. yachting caps. It's kind of funny and it's kind of cool. It's like a big frat party. The thing is that music which I've always kind of been in a position where I've been included in some of these compilations with songs, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know, Lionel Richie and stuff. And mm-hmm. it, I just feel so misplaced in those in those yeah. records. But when this band, the Yacht Rock Review, performs Hall and & Oates and Billy mm-hmm. Dan and Doobie Brothers songs, I'm able to somehow appreciate them more yeah. And the originals, because the originals, I would just kind of go, oh, and I would just kind of write them off. Just really? Huh? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I I was always, in my mind, a rocker, and that stuff yeah. was kind of schlocky, poppy kind of stuff that yeah. sometimes would be what, what I would like to listen to. It would be okay. occasional Chicago song, maybe one Chicago song that mm. I ever thought, I'm okay. not going to change the channel, I'm going to listen yeah. to this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now, it's it's a funny it's, thing to be. The, it's like the it's like the Groucho Marx thing about being in a club. That, it's so interesting that you mentioned this exact thing because when I was listening to Myth America, which coincidentally is not on Spotify, so I listened to the previews of each song that's available on iTunes, so that I would at least have an idea of it before we talked. That's interesting. Yeah, and I was listening to this thinking. 
man, Walter can do just about anything. And I wonder what, if there is a particular genre that claims you. Because you uh-huh. were just saying that you consider yourself more of a rocker than a yacht rocker or a soft rocker or an easy listening guy. But who claims you as theirs? Because almost any <laughs> genre of that period could do it, right? Well, that is funny that you uh, mentioned that. I mean, yeah, I think what it is is, above all, first and foremost, I am a songwriter. You yeah. Know? And then so I create these songs. I don't necessarily do them with any artist in mind. I just kind of write you just songs. just go with your gut, you know? right? I mean, Whatever I got a guitar feel. when I was 15. Yeah, I got a guitar when I was 15, and by the time I was 16, I was writing songs, and I haven't really turned around since then. I haven't yeah. stopped. I enjoy lots of different kinds of music, though, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up loving doo-wop music. I was, I'm old enough to have been around. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very young, but I remember Elvis on, on Ed Sullivan. And, oh, wow. You know, so, so I, my life is kind of, I've been called the Forrest Gump of rock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know in a lot of ways, you know, it's appropriate because, you know, I do, I was thrilled by Elvis's performance on Ed Sullivan. Sure. I learned how to play guitar from a Kingston Trio songbook. I saw the Beatles three times when they performed. Really? Wow. So I'm of that generation. You know, the Jackson Brown song about the 59, I was 21, whatever that song. Yeah, what is that one? Yeah, Um, I know what you mean. Running on. Running on empty. Running on empty. Yep, that's it. So I'm basically the exact same age as as Thompson. And Stevie, for that matter. Stevie's... Mm-hmm. About a month older than I am. Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! We're going to talk a lot about Fleetwood Mac in a little bit, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So this, so you kind of you, you. It feels like you have an affinity for just about anything, anything that moves. Well, yeah, and, and so right? I was able. Speaking of the do up, when I was living in New York in the early '90s, I inherited the house I grew up in in Forest Hills. I was oh, able okay. to play with Randy and the Rainbows. I played, um, you know, lead guitar, and I, and I sang some falsetto for. Randy and the Rainbows were the last doo-wop group to make the top ten with a song called Denise. Turned around and she 
come on, Walter, you're not rocking hard enough. Come on. So, so it was great. I oh, just great. Said, you know, all right, let's go. That's just what and, you want Wanda Jackson yeah. to say to you. That is so great. I know. And she's a great lady. And so that, you know, sure. I've been able to exercise a lot of these definite loves of my, the music for me. I played bass for the band Spirit for three years. In the yeah, I want to talk about Spirit, too, in a little while. Yeah. And so, you know. So, you know, and then, of course, I got to do music and I got to do my own albums. After I had success, my high school band, the Malibus, was able to start Mm -hmm. a recording career, basically. And we did a record for Rhino and we've done about four or five CDs since then. And my country rock part of me that, you know, Graham Parsons did my song Hearts on Fire. And I've I've played in at least two versions of the burritos and then a band mm-hmm. called Brooklyn Cowboys, which basically yeah. was I've been reading about it. all these things. You're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I know. So you know, but it's great for me and I enjoy it all. I don't know why I would have to confine myself to one or the other. Good. Or maybe it's the jack of all trades, master of none theory. Yeah. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But no, I, I enjoy doing all those things. Tomorrow as a matter of fact I'm going to play with the Burrito Brothers. Uh-huh. We did a record about two years ago now for a German label. The label was called SPV. I think they've gone under since then, but uh, they released a, a CD that we did called Sound as Ever. That's a phrase that Graham Parsons used to assign his, his letters with when he was young. Oh. And I said, you know, I'll do this if we can make it as true to what I think of as the genesis of country rock, which is mm-hmm. the Gilded Palace of Sin album. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Sweetheart of the Roadie was kind of like the John the Baptist of country rock. Mm-hmm. And it came in and it sort of announced that yeah. you, you could do traditional country and not have your tongue in your cheek. And you could, you know, abandon yeah. you know, young people. Because in those days, you, people don't realize today that polarization between the rednecks and the hippies was was very extreme. And, and the yeah. most radical thing a, a, that a, a rock band could do would be to seriously try to play country music. I mean, mm. it you know, it, it was the era of I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee kind True. of thing, which just would put down the hippies and put down the, right. the young people. And, and so... You know, and of course the Beatles with Ringo would sing one or two or, you know, they, yeah. and and then it would sort of creep in a little bit, but that was really the moment mm-hmm. of uh, revelation. I mean, I was a yeah. huge Birds fan. When they came out with Sweetheart of the Rodeo, I was just taken I back. I love that album. Was, and then, you know, it's of course my favorite of their records now, but. Yeah. At the time, it was just so out of left field. Yeah, because they were they had just done eight miles high, and they were you know mm-hmm. the psychedelic band kind of. Sure. So yeah, so that was uh, pretty crazy. But then I followed this G Parsons guy, who <laughs> seemed to be affecting his change. And then of course, yeah, in the Flying Burrito. And he does one of your out. songs. Did you write it for him, or did had you already written no. it and he wanted to record it? What's the story on Hearts on Fire? <laughs>
it was written after I spent an afternoon with Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel of him teaching me my seminal country guitar lick. Oh, wow. Which is like one of these endings kind of go... And, you know, I'm still practicing that lick so many years later. But he's such a great guitar player, Ray is. And his hands are huge, you know. Like, they encompass the whole neck. Is, is oh, wow. finger span. He's, he's a tall guy with with big hands. But anyway, oh. after he left, I, I sat down and I wrote this song, The Heart's on Fire, but the original version of it had uh, lyrics like, can doctor give me something for my burning heart? Kind mm. of like alluding to heartburn and, and mm. you know, right. the tongue was creeping into the cheek a little bit. And, and yeah. my, my friend Tom Guiderer, who was the bass player for uh, Sageworth, which was the band that I was in at the time, my college band. And uh, he said, well, you know, this is actually a pretty good song. Let's, you know, why don't we try to make some serious lyrics here? And so so he came up with those changes that uh, appear on, on the okay. recorded version. And at the same time was when Emmy and Graham were getting together. That was another amazing moment for me is yeah. after following Graham Parsons and then coming to be uh, captured by his pull, as it were, mm-hmm. to be there the night that he came and met Emmy Lou. Oh, wow. In, you were there? In Georgetown. Well, not only was I there for the, when they met, which was, of course, the first time I met him, uh-huh. they sang an off-the-cuff version of I Saw the Light at this club oh, no called Clyde's. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But then when they came off the stage, they were like, well, you know, we really need to spend some time together and sing, and where can we do that? So there I was. I went, well, come on to my kitchen. So the first time they sang together, it was in my kitchen. I was the only person person present at that performance. Yeah, so to me, that was, wow, you know, this is amazing. Graham, in his sober moments, was uh, an amazingly charming person, and his really? charisma, you know, came through. And he, of course, was wearing well, one of the the nudie jackets when he showed up at the door. And it was like, oh man, oh wow, he's so cool. So you well, know, he's I this mythic like, figure. I would imagine there's got to be a dark side too, right? I mean, to a guy. Yes, like that. there is. Um, yeah, and you were probably privy to that too. A little bit, yeah, and that uh, that was actually a moment of epiphany for me as far as realizing that these music stars who I had so eagerly followed and idolized and put on pedestal kind of were human beings, you know, and they had their yeah. their uh, tough times and their demons and their and they but they were through it all. They were able to create these amazing yeah. works, you know, that that affected yeah. my life. Music to me and songs, the, you know, the Beach Boys for a long time were especially, mm-hmm. Brian Wilson was very um, important to me and I would sure. pay very close attention. It, and, it, and it came along with being friends with my friend John Zambetti, who was the leader of the Malibus, the, the high school oh, band. Okay. He, and, right. he, he and I would, you know, whenever the new Beach Boy record would come out, we'd sit there and just analyze it. We'd listen oh, to it together man. and we'd go. Those the, the piano and the bass are doing the same thing or this. And yeah. That. You know, so it, it was great training on the one hand, yeah. but it was also the crazy kind of feeling that I had in high school when I started to uh, write songs and be in the band. Uh, John and I were in this, it seems like 
know, some kind of weird little bubble, a little cocoon uh-huh. of thinking that we were great. You know, it was yeah, like, yeah. well, we're as good as all these people. You know, of course we are. Let songs, you know, he'd write a song and he'd bring it in to school the next day and I would go, wow, yeah, that's great. And then I'd go home and write one and, and it went on and back and forth like that. And yeah. so we were our, be- our own, each other's best audience is what right. I like to say. And so that, that helped a lot to uh, to nurture the early because, you know, the amazing thing to me of this career, if you want to call it, that I've had in music, when, uh-huh. of course, it is a career, it's, right. you know, perhaps not the career I feel like it should have been, but right. I feel like it, I've kept it alive. And, I've, yeah. and uh, you know, it was something that I decided or I came upon without any real training. I mean, it was like, yeah. I'm going to write songs. It's like, well, how do I, you know, yeah, why should I think that I could write songs? You know, Right. To do this stuff, you know, without taking yeah. lessons, to me, was kind of funny and kind of rewarding, ultimately. And I'm right. glad that my mother lived long enough to see that happen, you know. Because yeah. the thing was, I mean, I was an only child. I was raised in Queens, New York. And my oh, parents right. were, it was kind of like that TV show Mad Men. My mother <laughs> and my stepfather worked in advertising. and they Oh, were, really? Yeah, he did the uh, the print ads for Radio oh, City wow. Music Hall. And she was the copy director and wrote for this Arnold Bread oh, and for, you know, so, yeah, yeah. so it was a crazy uh, world. Yeah. I did. And, you know, I used to put them down for the shady advertising and all of the, yeah. you know, I was like, I was like, no, I want to be a pure artist. You're talking about you and your buddy kind of writing songs, taking them to school, showing them to each other. You know, you have to be cognizant of the fact that there's probably millions of people out there who have done that exact thing and didn't reach the levels of acceptance that you did. I mean, you're one in a of million. You, you won a lottery there. You know what I'm saying? To, to yeah, go from being the kid me. who's just writing songs with his friends to having Graham Parsons, of all people, record a song and become a friend, and then to have Fleetwood Mac basically launch you as a solo artist i mean could you ever have imagined i mean we should no you're you're a you're a lucky blessed human being because there are and i'm sure you believe me i uh, millions of others who were you're right about that and i look at it in a way that uh, being an only child is one part of it but i have a cousin my cousin jim he and I were born 15 minutes apart in the same hospital, same doctor. Oh, and wow. so we grew up as brothers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting test for the, the astrological view of life. Oh, interesting. What happens, you know. So he, uh, he and I had fairly parallel lives for a while. And then when we graduated from college, he went to Fairfield and I went to Georgetown and he was in a band called the repairs and mm. they did two albums almost right out of college. Their leader was a guy named Peter McCann and Peter had also had a hit of his own at one point called, do you want to make love or do you just want to fool around?
out of the seven, maybe three of us thought it was a good idea to move to California, me being one, and the rest thought it was too risky. So we took a detour and moved to Boston in 72 because we figured, well, we grew up in New York, so we really didn't want to be back there. Uh-huh. We figured we could play it and still not have to live there. You know, it was right. just living there at that point was the, it was kind of on the down downward trend okay. as far as uh, living in in the city or living in New York was. So you know, we decided on Boston. There were a lot of schools, there were a lot of clubs. We went up there and played some gigs and seemed to do well. So we moved up there as a band. We all lived together in the house. We made our way through the Boston scene. We're managed by uh, this company that managed the James Montgomery Band, who were mm. supposed to be the next Jay Giles. And so, you okay. know, we were well positioned with all that. Meanwhile, that was when Graham and Emmy had just cut Hearts on Fire. So, you know, there was a little bit of something going on for me yeah. with that. Yeah. And, of course, they came through town in 72, and that was when Graham was on the downward spiral. and I actually drove him around Boston for about two or three days, and he was just real bitter for whatever reason at that point, yeah. whether it was the drugs or what it was. He was just like, you know? yeah. So that was the side of him that I was alluding to earlier when yeah. you know mm-hmm. when he was the charming sweetheart of a guy. He was right. you know the other side, the demon. Yeah. And that was sad to see, and it sort of hit me. It was like, well, you know, if you're gonna make it, you're gonna just sort of make. You have to be your own hero, so to speak. You can't really idolize these people because they're just people. They do great things. And that was the great thing about Graham was his vulnerability, I think, is that that he had in his voice that kind of really intense humanity that he brought to his music. But anyway, so back to the story. Um, We moved up there. We we got, you know, inches from a deal with Warner Brothers, um, this woman named Mary Martin, who was the A&R director, Really loved us, was courting us. We were, you know, already, and it just it didn't happen. And that was just one of about four or five almost got a deal yeah. for that band. And so it got to the point where, well, it's your fault because you didn't want to know. Well, no, it's my fault. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the sort of self-destructive time that the band goes into. And, and sure. so that band broke up, and I decided it was time to move to California. So I had, you know, my Grand Parsons cut under my arm, and I drove out to California at the behest of Chris Darrow, who invited me to stay with him. And then I was with him. I was there for about a week when United Artists pulled the tour support that they were going to give Chris to go to the United Kingdom. Hmm. And so he couldn't bring his band with him to support his new record. And he asked me to be his accompanist. So I wound up wow. being in California for about two weeks, turning around and spending a month in England, opening for the Man Band. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they were kind of they're kind of like the Welsh Grateful Dead in a lot of ways. Oh, okay. <clears throat> kind of extended jams, a lot of guitar stuff, and really good okay. band. Um, Deke Leonard was kind of the leader of the band. So we did a, a month-long tour of England, and the A&R man for the record label, which was United Artists, was a guy named Andrew Lauder. And Andrew, I got to know him a little bit over there. And you flash forward to my returning to California where I put together a band with some people. I thought I was moving to L.A., and I was actually moving to Claremont, which was where Chris lived. And, oh. and he answered okay. that's about 30, 30 or 40 miles east of L.A. 
So Chris introduced me to a couple of other songwriters, and, and he sort of suggested it would be great if we put together a band as three writers and call ourselves the Ghost Riders. And so we got together, and that was Earl Shackelford and Dave Millard. And as we were working, Chris's manager was this fellow named Greg Lewert, and he worked at United Artists America. And Greg got to be a little bit interested in the group because Chris was producing us. And we went and did some demos, and the name of the studio was Sound City. So mm, sure. all of a sudden we were at it's Sound really City. really famous lately. Yeah, of course. And yeah. at the time, it was just this funky studio at Van Nuys, yeah. which was kind of off the beaten path. But those in the know knew what great sounds you could get out of there. Okay. And, uh, of course, this was right around the same time that they were doing the Fleetwood Mac record, although yeah. okay. I, didn't know it, I didn't know it at the time. Then in February of 1976, we went to do what they call a hoot night, which is like an open mic night at the Troubadour. And you get to do six or seven songs. You know, most of the songs were songs I had written, but I only sang one of the songs. Okay. And at that performance, the aforementioned Andrew Lauder was in, in attendance with Greg Lewis. And they, after the show, got together. And the next working day, I was called by Greg saying that Andrew wanted to offer me a deal. Uh, six six sides, which is three singles, uh, yeah. six songs uh, for United Artists in England. And I said, you mean the band? And they said, no, just you. It's like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird, okay. kind of awkward. Yeah. I was I was sleeping on the sofa of David and and Earl, and so you know it was a little bit weird. Yeah. But uh, eventually uh, it was real. It was revealed to be real as many things in the music business are not yeah. real until they actually have happened yesterday. Yeah, I can because. imagine. Can I interject one question real yes. quick? So it sounds like the label rep is taken with you and thinks that they can do better by surrounding you with other people than the band that you're currently with. That's the that's the logic behind a, an offer like that, right? To some degree, because they didn't have a lot of sample of me singing or leading the band. All the bands I've been in, I'm like, well, I'll write the song, but you sing it. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. So, you know, when it was presented to me, I said, well, you mean you want me to sing them? And, they, and he said, yeah, yeah he wants you to sing them. So, wow, okay. So I was a little bit insecure about the, the terms huh. of that deal. Because, I, you know, I mean, I loved the idea of it. I, when I was in bands, I would, do, I would sing the oldies or I would do, you know, I would do the fun yeah. songs and let the serious songs be done by somebody else. My yeah. thinking then is that if you guys consider yourself a band and they like what they hear, but they see dollar signs when they think about marketing you specifically, why not just come to you guys and say, we like what you're doing, we like the band, we, we believe in Walter, we're going yeah. to push Walter, and you guys can either be his his band, or yeah. you can go do something else. Now, granted, that's a that's a really yucky position for those guys to be in as well. But at least they're not being kicked to the curb, you know. I, I don't well, know. Yeah, it's, you know, I like I say, I felt a little awkward at the. At, I can imagine you're sleeping on your couch, and but you're the guy getting the time, deal, right? You know, I had moved to California with the express desire and and intent of getting a record deal. I mean, that's what I told my mother sure. when 
my old band broke up, and she said, well, let's have a talk, you know. Now, now that the band broke up, let's get serious. And I was like, well, yeah, I am going to be serious. I want to get a record deal and go, yeah. go to California. And so, you know, I had been writing songs a lot, so I, I had that. I believed that my songs were good. And when I moved there, I had just come out of a situation where the band was 24 hours a day, everybody, all for one, one for all. Yeah. Okay. This is what this is our life together, and and it was not that it was, okay. Well, let's get together and and see what we can do. But I've got these other things that I'm doing too. But for me, that was the thing I was doing. These other oh. guys had a few other things okay. going. Okay. When I got there, I drove forty miles in and forty miles back. Yeah, true. You know, many times a week just to go and hang out and to go. Yeah. And so Greg knew this about me, and he knew that I had the burning desire. Okay, here's another funny little anecdote about moving to California. So when I was going to California, there were at least two things in my brain other than becoming the next Graham Parsons. Linda Ronstadt had offered me a position playing guitar for her because she said the guitar player wasn't working out. She told me that at the end of the year before that. So it was like three or four months gap between her offering this and me getting out there. And, of course, by the time I get out there, the guitar player was working out perfectly well, and that was Andrew Gold. So, you know, it's like... That's who I thought you were going to say. Yeah. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. The other thing that was going on then was that Bernie Ledden was leaving the Eagles. And so I had written a letter to Glenn saying, you know, I'm coming out, hold the spot open, I'm ready, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, I had a meeting with him and, and Henley, and actually Fogelberg was there that night too at the Troubadour oh, wow. at the bar. And, uh, and so, you know, I said, okay, hey, Henry. Well, you know, we've got this guy who's really working out. Then Glenn got real sincere and serious with me, and he like in a brotherly way put his arm around my shoulder and yeah. said, you know, I know you're going to make it here. You just got perseverance is the key. Just remember yeah. perseverance. And so I've actually always remembered that, and I've always believed in that uh, in that theory of, right. you know, I mean, if you love what you're doing and you think you're pretty good at it or good enough at it, sure. Then do it, you know, then stay with it. And then so. How are you making you know, a living, by the way? <laughs> how are you? I right, mean, at that time. Right now or then? No, well, I want to know right now, eventually. But is this one of those things where you move to LA and you're a waiter with dreams of yeah, being a was, songwriter? Or are you making a living play, playing gigs around town? How are you paying your bills? A little bit from the royalties 
I mean, a dollar okay. went farther in those days. True, um, true. And the royalties are pretty much the same for Hearts on Fire now that they were then. So it's an interesting <laughs> yeah. kind of weird thing with that song. So a little bit with that, and then gigs. You know, I would do gigs okay. and, and hire myself out. Chris Darrow's brother-in-law is a guy named David Lindley. Who oh, you may know. that David Lindley? Sure. Yes. And yeah. so I had a van, and I would drive him around. Oh, he, you know, and he would yeah. throw me a bone and, and say, "Here, you want to help me cart some equipment or whatever." So yeah. Yeah, I did odd jobs. I okay. you know begged from my parents a little bit. And, yeah. But I mean, it you, wasn't, you landed I like right high in the hog. No, <laughs> but you you were able to stick around, and I mean, it sounds like you got there and were kind of pretty immediately plugged in with the people that you needed to be plugged in with to yeah. at least start a career. I mean, again, going back California. to what I was saying before, how many people move to California and remain on the fringe forever because they can never penetrate that social bubble? You know, not yeah, to take anything sure. away from your talent, but it's. Uh, so often in life, it's who you know, and you're rubbing no, shoulders with true. all the right people, you know, off mm-hmm. right out of the gate. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it was that they were a little bit more accessible, you know, and having met them at that point in their careers, we weren't that different. They were maybe a couple of steps ahead of me. But, okay. Yeah, that's know, true. I did have the talent to write these songs yeah. that they had heard, and, and so it wasn't so unaccessible at that yeah. point, you know, and especially it, you know, with the thing with Graham, yeah. you know, that was a big plus for me to have that as a, as a thing to say, well, yeah. you know, Graham Parsons did my stuff. Oh, well, come on in. Yeah, you know, exactly. Let's see what you got. I mean, I was incredibly fortunate, but, you know, I think I... But you're I, saying this, you know, not to interrupt, but I, it just occurred to me that as you were kind of saying about Graham earlier, at this at this point, they're just people, Right. I mean, we know in retrospect the history of that time, of Southern California in the 70s, full-on decadence. You know, we know, uh, we're just imagining that the sun is beating off the ocean and inspiring everybody to write all these beautiful songs. We know that in retrospect, but at the time, (laughs) you're there and you're crashing on couches and people go to the bathroom and people... You know, they, it's, they're they just regular people trying to scrape them together like anyone else, you know. Yeah. And some of them are maybe higher on the food chain than others, but they're not yeah. Linda Ronstadt, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer yet. They're not, you know, not. No, they were Andrew people. Gold, the wonderful songwriter. They're just people, right? Right. Well, we were all in the process of becoming who we became. That's true. And, uh, I didn't think about you that, know, but yeah, you're right. So I moved I moved out there in March of 74 and went through that process that I've described. It's still a year and a half ahead before anything tangible came. At the end of 74, I went back to New York thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to return or not. I mean, it, huh. you know, it was semi-successful, it, and, you know, it wasn't fully successful and I wasn't making money as you were mm-hmm. just pointing out. Yeah. Then while I was in New York during Christmas holidays, I got a call from Jackson Brown saying, I'd like you to come out and play in my band. And that was for the, uh, the late for the sky tour. Oh yeah. Wow. So you I played said, on that? Well, I wow. rehearsed with him for about two months for that tour. I went in there. He said, I want to add a, an electric rhythm guitar to the band. And I want you to play that and maybe sing a little harmony. So we went there and we rehearsed. And, and I had met Jackson in 72 
there's a club in New York called the Bitter End. Sure. And the, the owner of that club was Paul Colby. And Paul Colby heard us do a hoot night there and uh, when we were living in Boston. And he really liked the band. He wanted to manage us. He wanted to huh. take us under his wing. So he arranged for us to come in to play there for a week or five nights. And the headliner for the bill was Sandy Denny and Richard oh. Thompson who oh, were wow. like two of my amazing favorites of, of all time, Fairplay Convention. Wow. And then a newcomer was supposed to be the opening act, and that was Jackson Brown touring behind his first album. Mm-hmm. And so he stuck us on this bill when we would do 15 minutes in, in a show. We'd mm-hmm. like get a, be able to do maybe four songs, maybe five, if we played them fast. And so I got to know Jackson through that time. And uh, it was really a fun kind of thing. We got a you know wow. variety review. Actually, sure. Bob Dylan came to one of the shows. I get to meet oh Bob gosh. Dylan. And oh it, my <laughs> when I met Bob after the show, Paul Colby took me over and he got to meet Bob. And I went, oh, okay. So I went over and shook his hand. And it's a pleasure, Bob. He went, nice. <laughs> nice? That's what he said? <laughs> That's all he said. That's all he said to me. He said, nice. And nice. So, <laughs> But that led me to know Jackson fairly well, a little okay. bit, you know, anyway. And so that's how he came to ask me to be part of his band. And so I wound up going back to California in January 75. And then I rehearsed with him for a couple of months. And so it was great. It was a paying gig and playing with mm-hmm. someone who I really admired. But as it evolved, he was getting more and more into the electric guitar himself. And so he would play it more, and then he'd give me the acoustic, and then oh. more and more he asked me to sing harmonies. And I was not a confident harmony singer at this point in my career. Okay. So it became more and more nerve-wracking yeah. for me as the as the rehearsal went along. And I felt like I wasn't cutting it, and, and ultimately he said, yeah, you know, this yeah. really isn't working, sorry, you know, and... And his was he cool about was, it, or was it? Well, was yeah, it he was cool. Weird, I mean, or okay. He, you no, know, he's a, he was a nice guy, and, and uh, we were good friends. Well, are just, you still friendly? Like we friends. Are you still yeah. in connection with a lot with any of these people? Yeah, I see them all when they come through. I mean, it's not like we okay. send each other Christmas cards, but right. I you know I, okay. I go and see them play when when I get the chance. Great. And they you know I go backstage, but. Yeah, so Jackson said, here's my advice, you know, do what you do well. And that, that sort of, yeah, well, I think I play electric guitar better than acoustic, and I think uh-huh. I sing harm, lead better than I sing harm. But, so anyway, you know, each of these things is a step and, and a learning experience. And so at the end of that, I was sort of putting together the band that did the, the Troubadour show in the following February. But at the same okay. time, I was playing with different people and doing those things as I was describing it was lucky, but I was hanging out a lot. I was there trying yeah. to be part of that whole scene. I aspired to that, and it wasn't that far out of my reach at the time. So after we got the offer of the deal from United Artists, we looked for producers. And our engineer, a man named Dwayne Scott, he suggested Buckingham next. And I said, okay. well, who is Buckingham next? Right. I had no idea this was spring of 76. And he said, well, you know, they, they used to be an actor in Fleetwood Mac now, and, you know, they want to keep their brand alive outside of Fleetwood Mac. Hmm. And so I 
I started investigating that whole thing. And at first I didn't know which one was Lindsay and which one was Stevie because the magazine article that I had gotten was still confusing as to which. I never thought of that, was. but you're right. They're both androgynous <laughs> names, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, I wonder which one it is. And, and then, you know, of course I listened to the record and it was very much like what I had been doing on uh-huh. the East Coast with Annie. So I got together with them. Of course, my middle name is Lindsay, and, uh-huh. and Lindsay was also influenced by Kingston Trio, Beach Boys. And there were just so many weird little connections that yeah. seemed to spark right away. And so I don't know. I don't believe so much in predestination or fate that way, but uh-huh. but it sure seemed right at the time. It was just like, wow, this is yeah. really cool. And, and that was just as Rhiannon was starting to break. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, she's really good. This is, yeah, this is pretty cool. So because they were very quickly becoming the very hot item in the music business, them saying yes to me as producers, mm-hmm. you know, sparked a whole other level. You know, suddenly oh, yeah. we're not going to worry about the United Artists. No. In England, Validation, we're going to get right? yeah, we got a, we're going to get an, a stateside deal. And yeah. Greg Lewerk had been partnered with David Krebs, who had the Lieber Krebs agency, who managed oh, right. Aerosmith. They've come up a couple they, times in my interviews. Interesting. Yeah, they did uh, Beatlemania, and uh, yeah, and he had an inn at Columbia, and so having Stevie and Lindsay on board made Columbia want to do this and and so they offered me a six album deal which i took yeah so that's basically how that came together but of course the uh, understory there of course is that Lindsay and stevie were going through this very bitter yeah breakup in their relationship and to work with both of them in the studio at the same time really turned out to be kind of a tricky dance was it ugly Well, not so much ugly, but uncomfortable, I would say. You know, oh, really? You could, you would see all of a sudden little zingers were going back and forth yeah. between them. And quickly, I became kind of the, uh, you know, the diplomat and the arbiter. Yeah. And I would kind of like go, well, you know, maybe. And the way it worked out, Lindsay basically would come during the day and we'd work on the tracks and the recording of the tracks. And when Stevie would come in, we'd work on the vocals and then. Oh, wow. Depending on who it was. Now they were living together, right? Well, not they broken up. Okay, so they were separated. Okay. Yeah, and but then, you're just course, feeling the tension between the two of them. Oh yeah, we started the recording of Fundamental Role in the summer of '76. Somewhere in the fall, Stevie was doing the background vocals on a song of mine called "Tunnel O Love." Uh huh. This wailing banshee, very. Uh, erotic vocal thing that she does and i was just like whoa <laughs> you know, yeah yeah this is uh this is over the top because i had always had a thing for female vocalists anyway and okay. so boom you know here she was and it was like yeah wow, she's you know she's quite something yes i was i was living in pomona at the time and so it was about three or four in the morning when i left that session and as i was driving out to pomona this car pulled in front of me and it was a Kind of a Lincoln Continental pimped out, as they say, uh-huh. the diamond window and the lights underneath it, this whole, you know, pimp mobile, basically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the license plate for this car said, not shy. And I was really? like, wow, that's, there that's it really is. interesting. There, this, that's, 
I should use that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, had, I had been working on a song that, that harkened back to the the uh, the fifties, the doo wop kind of thing uh-huh. that I grew up on. But the lyrics to it were very very boring, basically. Okay. And so by the time I had gotten home, you know, thirty five minutes later, somehow this whole thing magnet and no steel way. came together at that uh, at that juncture. There it is. Four o'clock. There's four the in the morning. Story. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And so now, of course um, I've been getting Stevie to record it with me on the se- it was on the second album of course, not on the first album. It yeah. you know, fermented a little while there. But sure. okay. but yeah, I mean that was that's the, the genesis of Magnet and Steel. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, it's crazy. That's- and then I of course did get to live my dream for about a month in nineteen seventy six. What's the month? You moved in, in with Stevie? No, I didn't move in with her. I wooed her. I wooed, wooed her. her. Yes. Okay, that's okay. That's what I, I was trying to be delicate about this, but that's what you're talking yes. about. So you develop a yes. crush on Stevie, and yeah, you got you and guys dated for like a month. Yeah, we went out for about a month. You and did? Yeah, we did. Oh man! <laughs> oh. I know it was. Uh, it, you know, Good for you, Walter. How lucky can you get? You know, I know. I mean, a, but I mean, plus this is going on during rumors, right? As they were recording rumors, yeah. Good so. gosh! I mean, yeah, I know. The, was... the story behind rumors has been told. Million, I mean, it's one of the most famous mythological stories of yore <laughs> in rock. I know. History. And I'm the footnote. And, I'm the forgotten you're, footnote. You're the thing that, that like that. doesn't get mentioned, but that's in there as a thing. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Now I assume she broke up with you. Well, this is how it came down. We started. This, you know, it wasn't the whole month of December because I had actually come back to New York for the last probably ten days of the month. Yeah, so we went out for about two and a half weeks. There, we hung out rather heavily, okay. and so then it, it then it turned into. Then it turned into her ultimately saying to me, you know, well, I mean, I knew it, too. It was a very kind of uncomfortable situation to be in the studio with Lindsay and her. And if I'm being with her, it would have just, you know, not crazy. And, And ultimately, she also said to me, you know, you remind me so much of Lindsay. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's like now is that oh. a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I was gonna say you there's know, it was like, pro and oh, no, con I mean, to that. I mean it in a good way, but it was very cool though. It was very wow. inspiring, and I've got a few oh, songs out of it actually. But yeah, you did. Not the least of which is Magnet Steel. Well, now did some of this drama lead to? Is that why they didn't stick around for the third album, or was the no? Or was actually the thought not. like you know if we can't get this guy selling millions of copies with Stevie and Lindsay, let's go a different route. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing was the first album technically had four producers, Lindsay and Stevie, myself, and Dwayne Scott, the engineer. Okay. And we worked by committee, and we worked in pieces, and, and but it, ultimately, I think it's a really good album, and, and it's amazing how much oh, yeah. Stevie is all over that record, but and Lindsay too, for that matter, but, you know, and that's what gave me the confidence that I really needed to, we formed a band, you know, kind of a, a temporary band for the studio. John Selk played bass. He ultimately became my bass player. John Ware okay. was the drummer and he had worked with Linda and with Emmy Lou. And then we had various other people that came in and out. And ultimately 
Tom Moncrief became my guitar player, but not so much on the first album. Okay. Um, but having Lindsay and Stevie, it just made this, and they, you know, and I would go, sure. really, do you think it sings all right? And they yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they were a great support team for me. And, wow. and the funny, also, the funny thing, though, at the time, when I was, when I was going out with Stevie during that month, one of the first times we went out, I said to her, you know, Stevie, I'm just blown away by your singing. I just think you're uh, an amazing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I meant it all. I wasn't just bullshitting sure. her. Obviously, she's a great singer. And, but she was all so very shy and insecure about it. She was like, really, do you think? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you're going to be big. <laughs> gonna yeah, be nice she's guy. one of the biggest singers yeah. of all time. Goodness. I know. She's a, an icon that's cut across all these yeah. generations, too, which is the amazing part. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, so it was an amazing, amazing Whoa. time for me to be in the midst of all this. And so, oh. so as it came around to the next album, the logic of it was, let's just get Lindsay to produce it and Richard Dashett, who had done Rumors as the engineer. Uh-huh. And you, you'll be the production team, and we'll have Stevie come in and sing, but not as a producer. And so that that made sense. Wow. And um, and so the next interesting part of this whole story is I don't know if you know about Hot Summer Nights. There was a time not too far gone when I was changed by just a song. Okay, it was the follow-up song to Magnet and Steel. Right, right. Magnet and Steel was released in March of 78, and it took its time getting to the top, to where it peaked out, you know. It didn't peak until, I guess it was the middle or late September. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, so so it just kept going up, and it lost its bullet a couple of times along the way and got it back, and you know, so it was an interesting story just in that song. The smaller stations that had started the process in the spring with Magnum Steel, you know, the stations in uh-huh. Albany, Georgia, and little towns in Ohio, they were already in the summertime to go on the next song, which everybody believed was going to be Hot Summer Nights, and that was the plan all along. Uh-huh. But Columbia just kept holding on to it and they didn't release it until end of October into November it seems like. Uh, so it was just misfired. All the stations were playing it over the summer but it was just an album track. For whatever reason we could talk for hours about uh, why Hot Summer Nights didn't do as well as it should. uh, But the recording of that song 
came about because during my first year of touring in 1977, I was still trying to impress Stevie. Of and course. She, she, was, she told me, I have this song that the Fleetwood Mac doesn't want to do, and I really think it's a good song. So she played this song called Sisters of the Moon for me. And I thought, well, yeah, that's a great song. I can do that. Yeah. Great kind of Peter Greeny kind of song that's uh, uh-huh. kind of like the, the Green Man Alicia in some ways. So um, I learned it and worked it up with my band, and we used to close the show with it on on my tour in '77. So when it came to record, I was like, well, and we're going to end the whole album with Sisters of the Moon. Um, no, we're not going to we're not going to record Stevie's song. But 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 Lindsay. Come on, man. Lindsay won't let you do it. Lindsay uh, made an executive uh, yeah. manifesto that we were not going to record that. And he said, listen, just go home and write a new song. We'll record it tomorrow. No way. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you went I home went and wrote Hot Summer Nights? I went home and wrote Hot Summer Nights. in the middle of the summer. I, you know, it was like, well, this reminds me of being in bands. I remember so Yeah. You know, and so I came back the next day with this three-chord song, and he said, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. So we recorded it less than a day after I wrote it, and uh, it went on no to be way. the most covered song I've ever written. There, really? There were, there were versions in French. There's a guy named Dick Rivers, Dick Rivers in France, who did a version of it called Van de Levla. There's a Swedish woman named Anne Greta, who did one called Flat Summer Dog. There oh was God. a Japanese version, a German version. There was well, a they version got by Night. Well, an Eminem track. Well, yeah, that's, that's the later part of the story. Guess who? Guess who? You miss me? Jessica Simpson, sing the chorus. When you want Lindsay for 
not sure. letting me do Stevie's song, and of course, Put it in the it goes to show you, you, know, you, don't, you listen to Lindsay when he talks, you know. He, he, so, Works out just fine. Oh, yeah, and man. So, and then the other weird part about that is the end of 78, I was in the musician's union waiting to get a check, standing in line, and this guy comes up to me, and it turns out to be John Stewart from the Kingston Trio and of his own solo career. And he starts effusively telling me how much he loves my record, loves the production, and loves Hot Summer Nights. You know, oh, who is the drummer? And, and can you introduce me to Lindsay? And oh, so I said, Well, yeah, sure, of course. I learned yeah. to play guitar from the Kingston Trio, of course. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And so I introduced him to Lindsay and that, that whole situation. Then wow. at the same time as Knight had Hot Summer Nights climbing the charts his song gold was also climbing the charts and if you listen to those songs together it's very obvious that uh, hot summer nights was his model for gold when the lights go down in the california town people are in for the evening i jump into my car and i throw in my guitar my heart up with Mick Fleetwood, 
right? And kind yeah, of that happened. married and breaking up their breaking up his yeah. marriage. Were you before or after that? I was before that. Okay. That happened. Do you don't think she broke uh, up with you or call or it kind of fizzled out with you so that she could get with Nick, or do you think there was Well, maybe. I mean of course Maybe. That's slightly as, I think Don Henley's I, in there somewhere too, right? Yeah, he comes along in a little time after that. Yeah, she's such a slut, you know. Oh, <laughs> And I say that in the kindest way. Possible. Of course. You know, I say, you it's know, royalty. You know, I dare say I have uh, I have proof. Let's say, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been marginalized in all these stories uh-huh. that have come out about it. But uh, the truth is, it happened. Yeah. I have uh, DNA evidence. <laughs> oh my god! Let's leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Uh, how many the, people the subscribe dress. to your podcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that many. Don't worry about it. Ah, uh, yeah. But <laughs> the odd in podcast. Right. But right. No, it's, oh, this uh, is so good. Yeah. So yeah. So that's it. Fits in just before all of that stuff started yeah. happening. You know, it's so, funny when I think about the when I was saying about the podcast. And I was talking about how I want to tell the stories that don't get told. Whenever I tell someone that, the first story that comes to mind is the rumor story. Because that's been told a million times. So I I see this almost as like the anti-rumors. Like we all know about rumors. How many more times have we got to hear that? I want to hear about the little guys, the anti-rumors. And hear your – there's there's an intersection here. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. definitely. By all means. Okay. Are you married now? Do you have a family? I have a son and a daughter. My son's about to turn 30. My daughter's going to be 21 this year. I was married once. We were divorced about 10 years ago. But now we're kind of like brother and sister. We're kind of pretty good friends. And we both live here in Franklin, or at least in Tennessee. But other than that, I am a fairly happy bachelor at the moment. Okay, good, uh, good. That doesn't mean okay. that I don't subscribe. Uh, of course, you got your girlfriends, <laughs> right? That's a whole other, yeah. That's the the, the latter yeah. chapters. I can of tell course. you some okay. other interesting okay. stories of my good. elbows rub. Do you have other famous ex girlfriends we need to talk about? Well, well, yeah, well, I apparently, mean... right? <laughs> I had no idea when I called Walter Egan what I was going to get. Yeah, well, you know, you got to be out there. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, no one. Anyone has, you want to tell me about or no? No, I don't think I should go into any. Oh, but, okay. Um, well, maybe you can tell may, me. We might touch on them. They have been reflected in, in songs that I've written. Put it that oh, way. Oh, man, and, you're going to make me go back you know. and read all your lyrics. Well, no, no. I mean, I I was in love with Emmy Lou when she first. Uh, oh, I wondered came about that. Okay. You know, okay. But at the time, I was with Annie McClune, and you know, and I had told my best friend in the world, Johnny Z, about my predicament. Uh-huh. I mean, this goes back to the early seventies, and then he came to town with his band, and I went out of town with my band, and he wound up getting together hooking up with Emmy Lou while he was using my bedroom. No. So that, uh, that was like, we were unfriends for about six months after that. Oh. That was a tough situation for me. Oh, and he was the only person I had told about my, my, my Ouch. Know, yeah. enamorment with, uh, with Emmy. This other one, it, it is most recent. 
I mean, the good thing about it was I realized that I could actually fall for somebody uh-huh. at my extended age and also of my extended age, someone around okay. my same age. My wife, as she then was, was 11 years younger than I. So oh, wow. I've always thought of myself as being younger than I am. So whenever I was in the midst of women around uh-huh. my own age, it always kind of felt like, who are these people? Are they my yeah. mother's age? Or, you know, it was always weird. It was weird for me. Let's right. Put it that way. And so I met this woman who is very much a contemporary of mine a couple of years ago and suddenly realized the hell I, you know, was falling for her. It's a whole movie in itself, I'll tell you. It was, uh-huh. you know, it's like, and, you know, and she's a quite a well-known person in the, let me in the see. music world. Okay. I'm tempted to guess. Uh, Carly I mean, Simon. Followed, no, 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 no. If you uh, followed, if you looked at my, my Facebook page uh-huh. and uh, some of my recent things, Oh, boy. There's, there's okay. evidence in there. And my daughter moved out to California a year ago, and she is uh, currently renting a room in this woman's house after oh, man. after I had about seven months of trying to woo her and uh-huh. she's so nice and she was just so it, it wasn't like she was telling me to get lost she was it seemed like she was encouraging me in a weird kind of way so I went with it and I wrote all these songs and I tried every power that I have to to <laughs> win her over and ultimately we're just friends we're, you know uh. turned out to be friends and it's you know, it's kind of Did disappointing. Did you date a little bit first? Again. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, Every time I, okay. I went out there for for about six months, we would hang out and. I am scouring your Facebook page as we speak, looking oh. for clues. <laughs> anyway, so I mean, yeah, you know, but not, nothing like Stevie. Stevie was the yeah. big thing of my life. She was pretty. She nervous. must just be magical. But and you know, and so I see her now. They came through town a few months ago, and I went to see them. And, but, you know, I have a good band. I have a great drummer who's the guy who played on Myth America. And um, I've just gotten back together with an old bass player that uh, we had had a falling out, and now we're friends again, and he's a great okay. player. And, good. and the three of us have a real, you know, kind of ESP kind of good. communication. Okay. So I'm trying to do as many rock gigs as possible. Good. But meanwhile, you know, I get offered to do these solo shows, and I've been doing – I played the Bluebird last Saturday – and wound up, uh, I'm, I, I'm realizing that people like to hear all these stories that I'm telling you. Sure. You know, it's like yes. with the songs and, and, and how the songs came about. So I'm trying to, you know, have a kind of casual, loose uh, right. song and story act going. And, oh, that's great. That's exactly so what you should be doing. Working that's well. perfect. I mean, but the thing is, I love playing with a band and I play like well, of course, much of better course. than I play acoustic. But you've but, got 40, uh, yeah. oh, it's almost 45, 50 years worth of experience, like we've been talking about tonight, of just yeah. these stories that, rub, like you I said, know. rubbing shoulders. Yeah, the world needs to hear this stuff, Walter. That's great. That's exactly yeah. what you should be doing. I'm happy to do well, it. Thanks. So, the, like I said, so the, it's, it's oh, Pamela DeBars. <laughs> that's who it is? Are you serious? I'm serious, yes. The most famous groupie of all time? Yes. <laughs> and ironically, I wound up being the guy she left behind. Yeah. What? Oh, my yeah. gosh. I've read her I book. Know. I'm a Michael I made the DeBar mistake fan. of starting to read her book when I was trying to, to oh. woo her. And I oh had to put it down for her. Yeah, it was a funny, weird little thing that happened. 
But I'm telling you, I get some really good songs out of it, so I think there might be an album there sometime. Oh, my. <laughs> but she's really nice, and, and it happened because my daughter came into me one day two years ago, three years ago, and said, now, Dad, don't get the wrong idea, but I really love this book. And it was, I'm with the band. I was like, okay, I, well, I know her, you know. I had played this Graham Parsons tribute out in Burbank, and she was at it many years ago. And so we were, you know, we were Facebook friends. But I hadn't yeah. thought seriously about her in any kind of way. And we went out there, and, and I got in touch with her. And I said, well, my daughter wants to, you know, meet you. And, and she said, well, I'm having, you know, a garage sale. Come on out. So we went out and uh, got to hang out with her, like, one afternoon. And, and you know, I was like, yeah, well, you know, I would be grandma. How come you don't know about me? And she was like, Well, you know, in '78 I was married and having my son, and, yeah. and so I was just kind of out of it during that time. And she said, Oh man, how did you miss me? Anyway, so you know, wow. so we get, and 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 of course, being the same age, we like have all we know what we're, each other's talking about in the reference. Sure. And she's, you know, she's very well preserved. She's quite an attractive. Oh lady. yeah, she's beautiful. And, and to meet sure. her, you would never think. That she was the, you know, most famous groupie person. of all time. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, so, you know, I got to be pretty good friends with her, and I started following oh. for her, and then I started writing the songs. And oh my god! She'd come to the shows, the Malibu shows, with me. It was almost like being in high school with her. It was just sure. really weird time. And we'd go to Disneyland, and ultimately, uh, well, I won't go into those details. Yeah, yeah, anyway, that's okay. You ultimately, keep it to yourself. This but, is great. You know, oh my gosh. But, yeah, so, so it was kind of cool. And, now, and so it was great. I mean, I really felt alive for about a year or so. Sure. There. Not that I don't feel alive, but you know, it's like after being married and yeah. there maybe a couple of women since then that I've been interested in and and none of it's really worked out and the women that want me haven't really been the ones I wanted. Yeah, yeah. And so it's you know, it's just been kinda of weird to be single but, out there oh at my, my age. So. <laughs> so I mean so. let me let me ask you a question about Pamela. I mean and this relates to Stevie too, but you were much younger then, it was a different thing. When you're falling for a woman like Pamela, I mean, she's been married before, and I know she seems like a really great lady, so this is not in any way criticism of her, but do you are you telling yourself don't fall for this person. She, it makes no sense to fall for this person. She's famous for the people she's been with, you know? Not that she's yeah, still I that know. person it's, at all, but, I mean, are you... I know. Well, that's, that's the... That is is the logic not factoring thing. in, or do you really think you have Only, a chance of, like, settling this woman down? Well, you know, just meeting her without all of that... I mean, I yeah. really had never paid that much attention. I never liked the GTOs. And I yeah. thought, you know, they were weird. kind of a joke. They were certainly famous. Being in my business, I always had the greatest respect for groupies oh for the gosh. most part, you know. Sure. So sure. that part of it didn't turn me off. It wasn't until I was trying to get her to fall for me. Yeah. And more more so than she was. And I decided, well, I, maybe I should read her book. Oh man! Oh no! I can't use Pantene because Jimmy Page smells like Pantene. Oh God! Yes, yes, you know, yes. All of these crazy things. Oh my God! But if you go to YouTube and go to my YouTube channel, you'll see uh, there's a live performance of a song I wrote about her called okay. Miss Pamela. Okay. 
sure. that I sub in this high school. And, and I've now been subbing, and I've been in that school probably longer than just about 90% of the teachers. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's kind of a Mr. Chips situation here. Yeah. But you don't I, you know, want a full-time thing? You'd rather just remain a No, because I can go away and for 10 yeah. days, as I'm about yeah. to do. And, uh, <laughs> That's what I figured. And do my music and then come back and step right back in because people, the teachers there know me. I am an unusual rocker, I suppose. I don't mean to yeah. my fellow brethren of the rock and roll world, but I'm a fairly well-read person. And yeah. I went back to Georgetown for a semester in 2008 and taught what they called the Music Business Seminar, which was none other than basically me talking about my life and getting these 20 students to write songs, to form bands, to do shows, to, you know, to do all the things that I had done in the music business and, you know, sort of give them a hands-on approach to that. And and that was really fun for me. They flew me up there from Nashville once a week for 13 weeks. Wow. And I would teach on Friday and come back Saturday. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was it was quite the interesting thing. And I, wow. you know, I did a concert there at the end. And actually yeah. wound up doing a, an art exhibit there of uh, my paintings. I've been doing these paintings of the martyrs of rock and roll for a number of years now. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in all different media. I've, first of all, I mean, I really am your typical Renaissance person, Renaissance man. I can tell. I have, well, I've written sculpts too, four, right? There's sculpture in here. Yeah, I was, a, I was a metal sculptor in college, and I still do some of that. But since then, I've done more printmaking and painting. And I wrote a song called R&R-IP a few years ago, Rock and Rest in Peace. which was in the 90s, and of course, it's the gift that never stops giving. This sure. Because it's a dying You just breed. write a new verse practically every week. Yeah, exactly. When I moved back to New York in the early 90s, my stepfather, as I had mentioned, was an artist, and uh-huh. there were all these art materials there, and a lot of the stuff that I left there after I graduated from college. And so I jumped back in and started doing all these arts, all these pieces around that theme, basically, and uh-huh. have... Uh, refined it to the point where I did a whole series that were all the same size painting. This other artist from D.C. took a shine to it and wanted to help me, and he did all these custom frames. Wow. And, uh, 
it's a pretty cool. Can we? Uh, is it is it viewable it. online? I was on, I well, on the web page. I don't think it's on there, is it? No, I don't think Unless it's on I the web page. There, I think there are some pictures from it on my photos on Facebook. But I, yeah, I okay. need to uh, to figure out what to do with it. But but we had an exhibit up in Georgetown about a year and a half ago of these 35 or so martyrs, and uh, actually wound up selling one, which was a great thing. And then um, in January, between my between my surgeries, I did a gig, a night with Walter Egan at the Grammy Museum, in which I basically was as loquacious as I am with you here tonight, and <laughs> talking about all these things that happened to me, and playing, you know, some songs along with it. And, yeah. And that was really fun. And then the next night we had the opening of the Martyrs of Rock at the Mr. Musichead Gallery on Sunset. I think there are some pictures of that on my site. Um, okay, I'll look. But I should put some of those up. And I and I put up these paintings on appropriate days, commemoration of the death day. Cool. Okay. That type of thing. Okay, so I have two last questions, two quick questions. These are questions okay. I ask most of the people that I interview. When you look back on your career, and it's this is this might be really interesting with you because you've already been so honest with me. When you think about your career. What is the most amazing, mind-blowing memory when you think about rock startup, or when, you know what's that first thing that comes to your mind that just makes you be like, I can't believe that happened to me. And it could be something that happened to you. It could be meeting an idol. It could be hearing your song on the radio. I mean, whatever that big thing is. And then, what's your biggest regret? Well, there, as I've mentioned, I mean, there are a number of yeah. moments that I've had, and some I haven't even mentioned here. Some of the I women thought. you've dated, I'm just maybe they're the ones well, first yeah, comes to mind. Yeah, know, I mean, but you know, thing. I mean, I, I wasn't at them to be at them no, because they of were course. icons. No, they, I know. They were just the, some person who I found yeah. appealing, and yeah. wasn't so much for their achievement or whatever. Oh, God, it's a really hard thing to nail down. I would say probably being able to go to Disneyland with Lindsay on a rainy Tuesday. In those days, they had the bucket ride where you could fly above Disneyland in your own personal gondola. We would go on Tuesday morning and smoke a joint as we flew across (laughs) Disneyland. Um, As far as the last person I met who I was kind of agog about when I met them was probably Graham, you know, before really? okay. I saw the, the dark side of him. I mean, mm-hmm. when I when I saw the, the light part of him, it was like, yeah. wow, you know, because I had really been trying to uh, figure him out. And, and yeah. the more I got to know him, it was this whole other thing. And the other part, boy, man, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. Regret. I don't. I you know. I don't dwell on any kind of regrets. I mean, of course, I you know the big general regret that people haven't noticed my songs since Magnet and Steel. And, and yeah. why. I mean, of course, they have, but not in the same way. Right. Right. You know what? Uh, what's the difference? What do I? Yeah. What did I do? And then you know, then I start going. Well, it was Stevie. It was Lindsay. It was. And then it just feeds into my own insecurity, and I don't need of to course, do that. You don't need to so that. I just pull out the New York Times crossword puzzle with me as an answer in it. Uh, yeah, look, look how far you've come. You you've go. done, you you've go. done pretty yeah. well. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, I mean, that's just talking about the business part of it. And it's a 
fairly tired cliche that people talk about their children, but in many ways my children are the greatest thing that has right. happened to me, and right. they continue to be. And, and the fact that they're both healthy and doing well, and the fact that I'm still able to do all this, how lucky I've been. Right. I don't know who's smiling down on me. Or My mother died when she was 60. She was going to have a quadruple bypass. At the Lenox Hill Hospital in New York, and she never got past the anesthesia portion of the operation. And so she was a heavy smoker, and she had the heavy martini lunches from being in the advertising world, yeah, and uh, all of that stuff. And she was a gourmand, so she used to eat very rich food. And yeah. uh, but as I said, you know, I was happy that she was able to see me have success. I suppose my biggest regret about all that is the fact that my mother and my grandmother, who I was very close to, they didn't live long enough to see my children, mm. which you know is something that I, I you know often reflect on when yeah. they do something. It's like, yeah, Jean would have loved that. Yeah. Whatever. yeah. But, mm. So yeah, you know that's that's yeah. a tough one, and it's somewhat of a regret that my marriage didn't last longer than yeah. it did. It's nice that. We're friends, and Good. that's how okay. we started out in the first place. But I think all in all, boy, I mean, you pointed it out. I mean, I couldn't ask for a luckier life than I've okay. had and okay. all of the things yeah. that I've able to still yeah. do. And if I can, you know, get a semblance of a revival of, yeah. of my career. Right. Because that's the thing. I mean, Eddie Money's out there. If he's out yeah. there, why can't I be out there? He's had a couple more hits maybe, <laughs> but. Exactly. I, think my life I just is saw just him out here. He played Denver a couple of years ago with uh, Edgar Winter and John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. They played like a Christmas concert out here in Denver. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, why can't Walter Egan be on a ticket like that? You mentioned, like, going yeah. back to that Yacht Rock thing or whatever. I mean, not that I would consider you to be like that, but why can't Walter Egan and Eddie Money and Pablo Cruz or, you know. Yeah, or, I did a show with those guys recently, whatever. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Why can't you guys go out and play food and wine festivals and stuff like that? I feel like, and this is not in any way to be immodest, I feel like I don't know of anybody who's like me. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I know there's no, some people right. who are sort of like, there was a guy, Moon Mullins, who was sort of like me. Andrew Gold was sort of like me. Yeah, I, think. I love Andrew Gold. You know, there's, yeah, I did, I did some shows with him. Oh, and I got to know him a little bit here. But I can't complain. Yeah, I can just no, keep right. persevering, as Glenn yeah. Fry told me yeah. to do so many years ago. Well, cool. And, you know, I get the the fact of that song of Magnet being in all these movies is such a funny kind of thing because I, over the years, I've tried to push my catalog on people who are doing that stuff, and they always go, "Yeah, we, you know, we love your songs. Yeah, we don't really know anything for them now." And then I'll get a call. Oh, I'm so glad I reached you. You know, Adam Sandler really wants your song and Deuce Bigelow, and we're yeah. closing the music on it in three days. And so I said, Oh, that's great. You really wow. wants it, huh? Hmm. But <laughs> yeah, you couldn't live I mean, off Magnet and Steel Money. Not to, you know, you couldn't live um, off that. To some degree, I have lived off it. Yeah, to, okay. to a great okay. degree. It's a thread in all of in the fabric of our lives. <laughs> sure, it is. It really, <laughs> I like to say when I play. Yeah. It. And it's true, people, and the funny thing is I'll do like a writer's night here in Nashville and uh, play it, and people come up and say how much they liked it, which is great. And then I'll, occasionally I get someone come up and go, boy, that was so great. Now, who did that song anyway? <laughs> it's like, I was like, well, you know, I did it. I, I, yeah, I know it's your I'm song, but, before you. but but who's, <laughs> who did the record? It's like, yeah, I did. Oh, so, it's, you know, that's what I mean. It's like uh, it's, 
I am a cult figure because you know I have a I do have and I found on Facebook that I do have strong fan support mm-hmm. in certain ways. I mean, yeah. apparently that has touched a lot of lives. That song, which is great, it's a wonderful yeah. thing. It's a very honest song, very yeah. unironic songs. You know, this is how I feel kind of song. And uh, yeah, it's a good one. So I mean, there's a lot of good ones though. That's the thing. It's, well, you you aren't you shouldn't be minimized to one good song. You had a lot of good songs. I just got done well, pouring thanks. through as much of the catalog as I could find, and there's lots of them. <laughs> During the summer, I teach at a couple of these rock and roll kind of camps. Mm. One called the Jam here in Franklin, and another one called Kids on Stage. And it's always very inspiring to me to just meet these young people who, at the age that they're at, are so far ahead of where I was at their yeah. age. It just blows my mind how good they are, and some of them are transcendently good, you know. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see that if they stay with it, they're really going to make it, you know. They're, yeah. And a few yeah. of them are already doing that. It washes away some of the cynicism that the business lays on you over the years, you know, and it's like, yeah, there's a good reason for doing yeah. what I do. So I enjoy doing that. Okay. But, you know, I would like to get out and, and do 100 to 150 dates a year, kind of on that kind of level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd that be you're nice. talking about there, you know. Yeah, and so uh, and I persevere to try and do that. And, uh, yeah, good. Know, hopefully, uh, good. Someone will hear this podcast and go, "Yeah, let's get him out." There. Let's get him out there. Hopefully, right? Hopefully, <laughs> right, exactly. Turn some people exactly. on to some good music. <clears throat> you told the stories that I know other people I talk to have, but I am too shy to ask for them, and, I, and they're <laughs> not going to tell me. And you told me, so I'm so thankful for that. That was great. Well, that was great. You know, why not? Yeah, <laughs> no, thanks for doing that. Point. Let's so, get the truth out there. That's what I. Yeah, think. good. One final thing I wanted to tell you about. There's an author named Jeffrey Thomas, who writes uh, science fiction horror novels or whatever, and he asked to use some of my lyrics a few years ago. And I said, sure, you know. And then he said, well, do you want to be a character in one of my stories? And so he wrote this story called Waltered States which oh, is wow. a very hilarious story in a in a short story collection called Nocturnal Emission. <laughs> <laughs> he sets a lot of his stories on this Earth-like planet and the city that's called Paxton, but in, in slang it's called Punk Town, and there are all these various aliens from different star systems come. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the kind of book that I would have read until I met him, and then I went on to read all of his stories, and they're really very clever and very cool. And I adapted one of them as a screenplay. And so I'm trying to get that. Uh, a friend of mine in oh, California wow. is, is running with that, trying to get it on the sci-fi channel. Yeah, okay, fun. And uh, so there's the Jeffrey Thomas I wanted to tell you about. And then the other thing okay. I wanted to tell you about was, so I got my hip done here in Williamson County, which is just south of Nashville in the Williamson Medical Center. And they asked me if I wanted to participate afterwards in you know talking about it. Which mm-hmm. I said, sure, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, Dwayne Eddy actually had, he was on one of these oh. know, testimonial commercials recently, wow. so I felt like, okay. well, if it's good enough for Dwayne, it's good enough yeah, for me. Yeah, sure. And so I did it, and they're about to put up a billboard here on the interstate of me doing one of my rock and roll poses, a live shot of me. Really? And it's saying, it's the, the little tagline on it is, Hip replacement just got hipper, so I think so you're kind of promoting funny. hip replacement. Yeah, apparently I am. Wow, the face of hip replacement. Yeah. Sure, so, sure. So yeah, if it's so good enough for Walter Egan. 
Wow. Everybody's doing it now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's that's cool. Those are fun tidbits. Good. Okay, great. Maybe my travels will lead me to Denver. And if so, oh, man, I'd love it so much. Oh, I'd love it so much. I know. I feel like we could go for hours more, but uh, we've got to trim it off. And if I'm ever (laughs) in Nashville, I'm going to come find you. Hopefully, you're playing someplace where I can come find you. So, anyway, thank you so much, Walter. This was an honor. You were a blast. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Can you believe that? Guys, I was dying when I was listening to this. I mean, that's the kind of juicy gold that you hope people will give you when you talk to them, but no one ever does. And Walter did. I was so glad that he did. Plus, he was just a really good man. I'm rooting for him. And his music's good. Go find it. Go listen to more than just Magnet and Steel. If you love that song, and everyone loves that song, there's nothing not to love about it. Go find some of his other stuff. It's equally as good. Anyway, he was a really good man, and I'm really grateful that he talked to me. I wish him the best. Also, uh, one more thing of business. Last week's guest, Pepe Castro, at the end of the, of the podcast, I mentioned that I had a CD of his to give away. I still do. If somebody wants his latest uh, solo album, which came out in 2013, just beginning, send me a, uh, an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, and I'll mail it to you. All right, next week, we are going back to the 80s. We're going to be talking to Andy Del Castillo, who is the lead singer of a Canadian synth-pop slash synth-prog band called Eight Seconds. Um, I saw them in concert when I was 13 years old. I loved them. He, Andy, incidentally, was one of the inspirations for starting this podcast. When I first thought about doing this and tracking down people I love, Andy was at the very top of that list so i was really amazed that i found him he's not in music anymore hasn't been for a long time and actually doesn't even seem that conflicted about it it's a really interesting conversation huge thanks to jan makiewicz for producing this in every podcast we're so grateful to him grateful to you stay in touch thanks everybody